mobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Gone Mobile. This episode's being recorded on January 12th, 2015. So for this episode, we're focusing on APIs again and, and how you can interact with them from your app and some different approaches around that. Uh, so we're joined by API expert Daryl Miller. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's like I so as we've been talking about, I, I saw your talk at Evolve uh, this this past year on uh, hypermedia and and I, I I can honestly recommend it very very highly to people. And it's it's one of the very few times I've seen. Uh, a complicated topic like hypermedia discussed in a, a pretty coherent um, and understandable manner. So if, if it's if um, if you're looking for a good introduction on that topic, I, I highly recommend checking out the video of that. Um, so you know the and again as as part of planning this episode, I know we kind of wavered back and forth on a, a whole bunch of different potential areas to talk about. Um, so we might have to have you on a few times, I'm guessing, just to, to try and get through it all if we don't scare you off with this one. But let's start with uh, let's start at a, a nice high level of, um, as far as API consumption goes. Like, what are the, what are some of the common approaches out there to consuming APIs, and maybe some of the the pros and cons around them? Well, I mean, obviously, the most common approach that people have when consuming an API is to go looking for an SDK. Right, we're all used to programming against libraries, and with the advent of NuGet and things like that, it's really easy now in the .NET world to just pull in libraries, and other environments have the same kind of package management stuff. So, if you can just pull in a client SDK, and you're used to dealing with objects, then that feels like the most natural way of going about it. Um, I think we almost feel offended now when we don't see a, a library out there for a new API we're consuming. That's the first thing you do, right? You go search for it and you're like, oh, there's got to be something out there. Yeah, and offended if there isn't one in your language, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is a problem for service providers, right? Because now the, the burden is on them to provide uh, APIs in different languages. and. Sometimes the service providers look to the open source community and they get community contributions, but then there's kind of a different level of quality potentially uh, between those different uh, different libraries. So it, it's hard for API providers. Uh, the, the, the other thing is the way that most of these service wrappers are produced, uh, most of the client SDK libraries are produced, is kind of like a service wrapper. So you have an API which has a set of endpoints, and there will generally be a corresponding kind of service class written on the client side that creates a procedural method for each of the resources that appear on the server. The challenge there is, is that now you have basically a procedural interface to the API. You're not really interacting with that HTTP API anymore. Now you're interacting with a procedural library. right? So some of the benefits that exist in HTTP with regards to the flexibility of how you can handle the different kind of things that happen in this distributed world where things actually fail uh, are not nearly as flexible when all you have to to call is a procedure where the only two things that are going to happen is either you're going to get back the type that it says it was going to give you back or it's going to throw an exception. Right? And HTTP is a lot more flexible than that. So 
the the service wrapper in my opinion is not necessarily the most efficient way of communicating with that API the other area is you're now kind of coupled to that service wrapper. You're not really coupled to the API anymore. So there's a lot of dependency on how well that service wrapper has been written. And the API provider has to make a bunch of decisions for you insofar as, well, what is going to happen when something goes wrong? It's no longer the client application developer making those decisions. It's the service provider who's creating that wrapper deciding, well, what are we going to do when you get a 404? And different clients will necessarily want to take very different uh, actions depending on the severity. You know, if you're just downloading an image and that image isn't found and that image is just there for eye candy when you're displaying some user interface, then getting a 404, you know, what does the web browser do, right? It just puts up a placeholder image and chances are the user can still get a good experience. But another type of application that may be doing image processing may take a more severe uh, reaction to not being able to find the image that it's going looking for. So th there's definitely decisions that are encapsulated into those service libraries that reduce the flexibility that you have. Yeah, and I think the those service libraries just kind of play into basically how we've been trained for years to to build layers of abstraction around those sort of asynchronous points or external points, right? So if you're the same way where if you're interacting with the database, usually you would have some sort of service layer there that you can easily mock out in tests or something that, um, you know, and then have an implementation for the database. And the same ends up applying for, for HTTP interfaces as well. So in, in the case of building apps, you know, often you have the service layer and uh, the app doesn't particularly care that it's HTTP versus, you know, raw TCP versus a database call or something like that. So, so in the, the world that you're imagining, um, will apps kind of accept HTTP as a, a more proper dependency rather than trying to tuck that away under behind a service layer? Well, I mean, that's certainly what I'm trying to encourage people to do. It was interesting. I was at uh, API Craft conference in Detroit, and we, we had an open spaces session, and the discussion was kind of, well, should people do client SDKs or should we do um, just straight HTTP type requests? And there were a number of people, Glenn Block, a friend of mine, very, very adamant that you kind of need to have those wrapper libraries. Having the option to bypass it is definitely viable, but some people really, you know, they, they feel like they need to have those libraries for acceptance of, of the API. So I, I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon, but uh, I'm just trying to encourage people to look at what are the potential benefits of not taking a dependency on those, uh, those wrapper type libraries. Do you think that we want those wrapper libraries because it's a lot more code to do without them, or is it more of a not wanting to know you know how these actual APIs work? I mean, it, you start looking at some of the wrapper libraries, and you know there's significant amount of code in them. So I'm I'm wondering if if there's you know a sort of happy medium between the two, so we're not rewriting the uh, same thing every time. Yeah, uh, th th there is a fair amount to learn about all the different interactions that can occur at the HTTP level. Uh, the benefit of learning them is, in theory, those interactions should be identical no matter which API that you're using. 
right? So when you learn it for going against an HPA API against one service provider, you've learned it once and now you go to another one. In theory, the auth header should work the same. The cache control header should work the same. User agent should work the same. So we should be able to build common libraries and infrastructure that help us so that although, see at the moment, all the different service providers are all building their own uh, API wrappers, right? So we have no opportunity to say, well, okay, let's build a standardized way of setting cache control header and use it across all different libraries. Like th there's a different way of getting code reuse uh, that's not specific to any particular API. And th the challenge I think also is we're, we're still fairly new in learning how to interact with REST APIs. Plus, we have this whole issue of what one person means by a REST <laughs> API is not the same as what somebody else means by a REST API. So there is a lot of inconsistency between the way different service providers do stuff. I mean, just look, look at authentication, right? I mean, if you go and read the spec that's been there for 10 years, it says the way that you do authentication is you put stuff in the authentication header. But, sorry, is it authorization header? Um, but for the last number of years, we've had all sorts of different creative ways. We've put stuff in the query string parameter. We've put stuff in custom headers called API key. There's all different ways that people have been trying to do authentication. I think that will settle down, and I'm seeing a lot more uh, APIs these days using more standardized ways as people are becoming more familiar with using HTTP directly. It's a learning experience for everybody. So you talked about like the spec saying this is how we do it. Like, Can we just back up a step and maybe reference our listeners to where they should be looking at these specs? Uh, well, up until probably a year ago, the HTTP spec was defined specifically by RFC 2616. And they've just finished doing it's wrong to call it a rewrite. It's they went over the spec and it's taken about five years to go over the spec and done a big effort to clarify it. They also took the spec and broke it down into I think five different specs now. So there's RFC 7230 which is kind of uh, the message format and how the response body and the re request headers go over the wire. And then 7231 is about the, all the semantics, what get, put, post, and delete, what those methods mean and what all the headers mean. And then there's, there's 7233 and 34. One of them's caching. One of them's, I don't remember all. <laughs> there's about five specs that have been... Uh, created from the original 2616. And a lot of things that were confusing and misleading to people have been clarified. And that's why I have kind of an optimistic look, forward-looking perspective. So that's like HTTP protocol itself. Is there any sort of canonical you know, spec or resource that you point developers to when looking at about designing REST services, as we would say? Uh, that's a lot harder. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, th there is the REST dissertation, right? So, well, sorry, there is Fielding's dissertation, which talks about principal design, and he has chapter five, where he goes through REST as an example. And th there's really some good information there, and it's well worth reading, but I mean, he, Fielding has a habit of writing stuff in a very concise and dense way, which when you already understand what he's trying to say, makes a lot of sense. But it's not 
really the place that you go to learn it. Um, and I mean, you know, in the last five years, there's a lot of people who have attempted to write books. There's the RESTful Web Services that just came out in a second edition. There's Rest in Practice. So there are a number of published books. Uh, I would, I guess I have to plug our, the, the <laughs> book that uh, uh, a number of us wrote, Glenn and Howard and Pablo and Pedro and myself. We wrote uh, Designing Evolvable Web APIs in uh, ASP.NET, which is partially technology-specific in ASP.NET and partially is about HTTP and REST and the way that you can use it to build evolvable systems. So, I mean, there's there's a number of good books there, but there is no one canonical place to say this is how you build a REST API because REST in itself being just an architectural style, there isn't just one way that you can do it. There's just a bunch of rules that you should follow, but because those rules are fairly high level architecturally, there's just many ways to do it. There is no prescriptive guidance, and I know everybody's looking for that, but <laughs> it just doesn't exist. Right, and then I mean, just to play devil's advocate for a second, um, like, is there are there any particularly good cases that you found for just going totally into the the client SDK type approach? Uh, yeah, absolutely, because if, if you look back at why REST exists, it exists in order to decouple the client and server, to allow independently evolvable components within a distributed system. And to put that in more practical terms, it means that if you control the client and you control the server and you control the deployment cycle, then you probably don't need to do a lot of the things that REST pushes you to do in order to decouple the client and server. I mean, the, the most obvious example of this is where people are building um, SPA-type applications where they've got a heavy JavaScript client that is accessing an API. If the only API that you're accessing, or the only client that is accessing your API is your JavaScript client, and when you deploy an update to your, your website, you're also deploying your JavaScript client at the same time, then the client and the server are continuously in sync. So therefore, the decoupling effort of REST is, is really just not worthwhile. Um, having said that, a lot of the reason why I see people wanting to build an API and then drive a JavaScript client off that API is they perceive the benefit of, well, if we build this API once, then we can also let third parties reuse that API and consume that API, which is just, it's great, it's awesome, except all of a sudden now there is a third party who's dependent on the API. So now, yes, great, you can deploy your server and client in sync, and you don't have to worry about the coupling issues, but you do now have to worry about breaking your third party because you don't control that third party's deployment cycle. So if you know that you're never going to let a third party access your API and you're building a JavaScript client, then you can forget everything that I say. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think uh, it's an interesting point about being on the same uh, development cycle and deployment cycle, um, especially with, you know, obviously our show is very, very mobile focused. Um, so, I mean, maybe that, that matters, or, or that counts more if you're talking mobile web, but once you get into the, the app side of things, that whole model a thousand percent breaks down because not only are you now on different deployment cycles, you can't 
you can't really even force someone to upgrade the app that they installed six months ago so that that client that you wrote six months ago is still still out there and still trying to talk to your API. Yeah, so the the, the one of the main reasons that I did the, the talk as Amron Evolve was because in doing mobile apps, you not only have to deal with deploying it, you have to deploy a client application through an app store. And when you're dealing with multi-platform type of environment, you have to deal with multiple plat uh, app stores. So it, the advantages that REST can bring in decoupling the deployment of the client from the deployment of the server can pay off significantly uh, on in, in that kind of environment. So then from an implementation standpoint, and I mean, like I said, hypermedia is kind of a tough thing to talk about, especially in, in audio form, I think, where you have no, no graphics or, or diagrams or anything. But at a high level, can you talk a little bit about like what it might look like um, from both a, a client and a server perspective to, to start taking that approach? Sure. I mean, there's a number of ways that you can kind of get into hypermedia uh, what I tell people is the most, the easiest way to start is with what I call a discovery document. It's kind of like the home page for your API. And I know there's lots of efforts out there at the moment to dis to create documents that describe an API for design time purposes, but I'm talking about at runtime, right? Like you create that root document and then all of a sudden your client, it goes and discovers that, goes to that root of your API and it finds the resources that are available. And the immediate benefit there is instead of having URIs hard-coded into your client, you can just kind of make that one request up to the server and download the list of, of uh, resource URLs that are available. And you can use those, which gives the server the ability to, at some later point in time, change those URIs, reorganize them, and the client will continue running. So th there's, there's also a number of other things that you can do, and it depends on how clever you want to build the client, but you can build uh, uh, discovery documents that add new resources available into that discovery document, and the client can automatically discover them. You can create templated URIs in the... Um, in the discovery document so that you, your client can search for different things, but it is aware of the parameters that are available. So then you can maybe later on add new parameters to those uh, queries without having to update the clients. And sometimes a client may be able be aware and be able to process those new things you added. Other times they're not, but at least you're not breaking anything when you add new uh, URIs into this discovery document. Right, and the the breaking part is something I want to dig into, but um, but real quick, just on the like taking this sort of hypermedia driven approach to building out APIs, um, and again to try and, and play devil's advocate a little bit, um, I, I I can absolutely understand the the benefits of doing that, and uh, especially if you're the consumer of the API, then you can kind of make that executive decision that hey, this is how we're gonna to try and build things out and, and make it. Um, much more modular and, and sustainable. Um, but then let's say you're an API, API provider that uh, with a public API, something that there's a whole world of developers out there using. Um, are, are these sort of approaches common enough now that, that developers are familiar with them and, and kind of willing to, to take this approach as opposed to the, the older, more standardized way of doing things? 
it, it's not common, but you know, companies like GitHub have it in their API. And if GitHub are doing it, must be cool, right? So <laughs> it, it, it's going to, you're going to see more and more of it. Um, you need to see examples of people taking advantage of it. And that's one reason why I like focusing on doing client-side work. There's a lot of talk happened about adding hypermedia in APIs and focusing on the server side of things. The problem is you also need to have a client that's going to take advantage of that hypermedia. If, if a client just looks at an API and says, oh, I'm not just not going to use that hypermedia on the server, I'm just going to couple directly to the endpoints, then you lose all those benefits. And also it takes, there's some quite different techniques that you need to use on the client to be able to take advantage of more dynamic hypermedia. And th that's also one of the things that I tried to demo in, in that Xamarin talk. That makes sense. And then uh, just to kind of stick with that for a second, uh, I'm trying to, to paint a picture both in, in my head and, and for listeners here of, of kind of what it means to start taking this approach in your APIs. Um, and it is, is providing kind of hypermedia as part of your responses something that you can layer in as sort of uh, an extra thing that you can that clients can opt into or is does it really fundamentally change what these uh, API responses end up looking like I, I think I think one of the downsides is that clients can always opt into it and ignore it right uh, right. so your clients have to choose to take advantage of those links in the payload um, and it is something that can be added incrementally into your API. As I mentioned, doing discovery documents initially is, is a great way to get started because basically you're just taking care, just creating one resource that has links in it and you don't have to change the rest of your API. Uh, you can also start adding in uh, links in, um, in response in representations. Uh, that come back to be able to, I mean, things like you're just finding a list of valid values. Well, instead of hard coding the list of potential values on the client, include a link in a representation that points to the list so that the client can go and download that list. And people often come back to Hypermedia and say, yes, but now I'm going to make lots more round trips to the server. And they're right if you ignore caching. The mm -hmm. one thing about hypermedia is you can't do hypermedia well until you actually start really looking at HTTP caching and taking advantage of it. Because a client is going to follow a link and go and get a resource, but ideally you don't want it to actually make a network round trip if the data is, is still valid. Right? And, and that's what HTTP caching does in that it allows a server to be able to say, hey, I'm going to send you this data, but it's good for the next three days. So if you need it again, just, just use some local caching mechanism that will just return that back and don't actually make the network round trip. And that's the same goes for the discovery document that I mentioned earlier. It's like, yeah, okay, on the first time you run your app, yes, you're going to make an extra one round trip in order to go and get the URIs for the resources that are available. But you can put a fairly long caching uh, lifetime on that. And every time you run the app, it can just go and get the version in cache. I mean, if there's new resources that are added into the system, then you know you, your client can probably survive a day or two before it sees those new resources that are available. And also, 
you need to make sure that if you are like making a breaking change to some resource structure, then you, you're going to need to keep some kind of overlap anyway between the old URI structure and the new URI structure. And that's, again, what redirects are for, right? You need clients to be able to go and say, oh, this is the URI that used to be, I used to use, and oh, it's not there anymore. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to go and download a new copy of the discovery document and find out where it is now. So all the pieces of HTML, HTML, HTTP, all kind of fit together. And when you use them together appropriately, they solve the problems that other pieces don't use. And that's one of the challenges that I run into when people talk about using REST, but they're really just doing JSON objects over HTTP, which is perfectly cool if you understand the, con the, the, the things that you are losing by not conforming to the other REST constraints. Um, but they will you will run into issues and those issues will be solved if you use other parts of rest you know caching is is a huge example there so then i one of the things you touched on there in passing was the this whole concept of round trips and and i think caching is one side of the the round trip equation but there's also i mean one of the the side effects of rest is you have these very um or restful approaches, I should say. Um, I, I really try not to use rest as a, a definitive term. Um, but but taking that approach, you end up with the these endpoints that are you know canonical endpoints that that do very specific things. So they they return some sort of entity or they perform you know an action on that entity with different HTTP verbs. Um, but in the case of things like mobile apps and where network calls can be very very expensive just to make multiple ones to to perform something. Are there any good patterns that, that um, kind of fall into this realm that you've seen to, to be able to specify maybe from the client side, like, hey, here's a, here's a potential pipeline of actions that I want to do and, and be able to, to run multiple things at once while still kind of conforming to restful things? Yeah, you see this request quite regularly, and a number of libraries have built, I mean, OData have built the ability to batch requests together. Uh, there are, um, I've seen people do uh, multi-part form type thing, multi-part data, uh, payloads that actually contain HTTP message contents, because there actually is a media type that describes uh, what an HTTP message looks like, so you can you can send HTTP requests, a list of HTTP requests in a larger multi-part type document, and mm -hmm. um, the, the the downside to that is the next question is often, well, we need that to. I was going to say we need to, add to add work in a transaction, but you can actually do that in a transaction because you are sending it as a single payload. Um, my experience is, is often you don't need to do that kind of batching. Most of the time, what I suggest to people to do is if you have some kind of sequence of operations that need to be performed as a single unit, then you should model that in your API as a distinct resource and send the set of information that corresponds to that sequence of actions to that resource in order 
to then perform that multiple set of operations. And this is one of the, the, the challenges that people get into when they're building REST APIs is they have they often have this perception with, well, I have a set of entities or I have a set of user interfaces, a set of view models, and I'm just going to create the resources that correspond to those thing, those entities in my system. And the problem with, with REST is you only have those few HTTP methods. You, you've lost a massive amount of descriptive capability that we normally have in procedural languages. So in order to make up for losing that descriptive capability, we need the ability to create new resources that do things for us. So you often will have to create a new resource, a new URI, that performs a very specific function. And being able to do these batch-type operations is one of the... Um, examples of where it's like, okay, let's just create a new resource and it will take care of that sequence of operations as a single atomic thing. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just one of those things where as you're kind of learning, you know, how to build RESTful APIs, it's one of those things that you're almost taught not to do or to you're taught to think about things in a different way where you're thinking about entities and HTTP actions and stuff. So one of the things I've, I've found lacking in, out there as I've been trying to build up APIs of my own was this exact sort of thing of, you know, well-established patterns for performing batch operations where often, often they're, they're really just a composition of other things where it's providing, allowing clients to kind of opt in to some optimized way of doing things, but still having those other endpoints for, for performing them individually if you want that kind of fine-grained control. So I've always found that to be kind of a, a difficult line to draw, at least in my own APIs. Yeah, and one one piece of advice there is when, when you look at the hypermedia community and when people are talking about hypermedia APIs, there's actually a few... You can almost categorize them differently, um, especially if you consider that there's a term called linked data, right? The semantic web people are looking at how to take data, put it out on the web, and make it discoverable, and define the relationships between the pieces of data. And you can kind of envision this idea of this crawler application that goes out and searches the semantic web and finds information out and gets answers for you by discovering the links and traversing links. And, and that's definitely one way of exposing data on the web, but it's not an interactive style of exposing data. When you're, when you're trying to drive a user interface where you've got a human being sitting in front of some user interface and they're entering some information, well, the type of REST API that you really want is one that is very workflow fa focused. It's not a data API at all. It's a okay, I'm going to guide you down a path. First of all, we're going to show you some kind of introduction screen that says these are the various options that you have and then you're going to select this option and I'm now going to ask you for a few more pieces of information. I'm going to guide you, lead you by the nose down this path in order to accumulate the information I need in order to perform the function that you want to, to do. And when you when you build an API that's very workflow oriented and application and use case specific, you tend not to run into these batch 
type problems. It's when you try and build an application workflow on the client that is accessing a more data-oriented API that you get into this issue of, well, I need transactions and I need batch operations. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun is an essential tool for every developer, helping you detect and diagnose your errors in real time so your team can fix bugs faster. Just a few lines of code is all it takes to get started, and you'll be amazed how quickly you start receiving reports from all of your apps. Why wait for frustrated users to notify you when they hit a bug, and then spend your time digging through log files? Raygun notifies you immediately and with all the information you need. Raygun keeps everyone informed, so whether you have 1 or 100 developers, you'll get everything you need to become an awesome development team. Start your free trial today at raygun.io, and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. Um, and, and I do want to get back to uh, the, the versioning topic a little bit, too, because I think we, we, we talked about it briefly, but kind of brushed over it. But I think that's one of the areas where this whole um, hypermedia type approach really, really shines, where kind of the classic approach to, to doing API development is you, you know, you have you have your API and you can make non-breaking changes to it that aren't going to make some client explode out there in the world. Or once you do need to make breaking changes, well, then you slap a slash v2 on into the URL or you, you, you add something to the query string that kind of triggers a whole new set of responses. Um, and you, you, have a, you have a whole new set of, of inputs to, to kind of work with and also maintain. So would you consider that to be kind of one of the, the big benefits as well to, to going with this sort of approach? Well, well, yeah, I mean, it, you take a very different approach to versioning when you're going uh, a full REST approach. Right? REST is trying to, well, it doesn't decrease the coupling so much between client and server as it focuses it. It moves it into a particular place or particular places where it becomes more easy to manage. When you have a just like a, a simple JSON over HTTP type of API, you would make a request to a resource, a URI, and you will get back, often you'll get application slash JSON. Now, how does the client know how to interpret that application slash JSON? It has to have a preconceived knowledge that when it goes to the URI that is slash customer slash 45, that there's going to be a particular schema that has particular information about a customer. So it has prior knowledge about exactly what structure it's going to find at what particular URI. In a full-blown REST system, you don't have that pre-existing knowledge. What you have is a, you have two things. First of all is you, if you go on full-on hypermedia, you followed a link. And a link has a link relation type. Right? You take a web browser, and right up at the top of there, there's that style sheet, rel equals style sheet. So when the browser follows that link to go to the style sheet, it knows what it's getting back is a style sheet, and it knows what it's supposed to do with style sheets. The one thing it doesn't know is whether or not that it's actually getting CSS back, right? It only knows it's getting CSS back when the response comes back with a content type saying it's text slash CSS. So the response that comes back is what we call as self-describing. It comes back and it says, yes, I am text slash CSS. And if you go and read the spec for text slash CSS, you'll find everything that you need to know as to how to interpret the document that comes back. There is no 
the web browser doesn't care what characters are in the URI that it used to go and get that style sheet. And the same goes with a full-on REST API. You shouldn't need to care what the URI looks like or need to know in advance, which is one of the reasons why um, servers are allowed to change them, because clients don't care. They just look at the link relation and they look at the media type that comes back. And once you've built that, that type of infrastructure, now you can change your API quite significantly as long as the link relation still means the same thing and as long as you don't change, make breaking changes to the semantics of the media type. Now, th there's a lot of other information uh, in, in what I said there, uh, especially <laughs> because of the way we're used to dealing with media types. We're used to dealing with very generic kind of media types. And over the last few years, we've started to see new media types appear. We've seen HAL, and uh, there's one called Collection Plus JSON that describes lists of things, and there's Siren, and there's JSON-LD, and there's uh, OData, and th there are a whole bunch of other ones that, that are doing other slightly different things. They're kind of providing us with more semantics. Like Collection Plus JSON is a great one because it has a very specific purpose in that it returns back to me a list of things. I don't really know what those list of things are, but I know that's a list of things. I know there's a way there's a way of representing queries that I can do on that list of things. And there's a way of creating a template so I can add a new item to a list of things. So it's not really hard to imagine building clients that would be able to handle lists of things and add things and query them. At which point you can build a fairly useful application without actually knowing what on earth it is that I'm showing a list of things, right? You can't, like, if, if it happens to be a list of expenses, you're probably not going to be able to do calculations on them and submit an expense report. But you can present that information to a user and allow them to select them and maybe actually take actions on those individual items in the list by following other links. But the client is still fairly dumb. And by making that client dumb to just being dealing with lists of things, makes it more flexible and makes all of a sudden versioning easier because I can add a new thing to the list of things because the client doesn't care what it is. It just knows it's a list of things with some data. So that's one of the ways that uh, full-on REST helps the versioning story. Um, but sooner or later, you're going to want a client that actually can do... You, you're, going to want to deal with certain application specifics at some point. And there are a variety of ways that you can communicate those application specifics. You can start creating a very specific media type that has understanding of a particular domain. Like there are, um, there's a media type that has been defined that uh, describes errors that come back from an API. Well, there's one called HTTP problem. There's another one called VND.error. And it has very specific semantics that talk about errors that come back from an API. So now when a client gets that back, it can do stuff with it related to errors because it understands the information that's there. Um, there's another approach that people are advocating for, which is the notion of profiles, where a profile is a way of layering certain semantics on top of another hypermedia type. 
Uh, it's very much it's similar to the way uh, namespaces add uh, semantic meaning on top of generic XML documents. And so th there's a whole variety of different ways to do it. There's no right way, there's no wrong way. Um, there's also, you can communicate semantics via link relations. If you use the HAL media type, HAL allows you to say, well, here's a bunch of information about a resource, and here's some embedded resources that exist in other places, but to save you doing the round trip to go and get them, I'm going to embed it inside this existing resource. But HAL itself still doesn't tell you what you're dealing with. It depends on the link that you followed to get to the HAL document saying, oh, by the way, that link that you followed is pointing to a person, and it's going to have a first name and a last name and an address and so on and so forth. So it all comes back down to these really two key things, the link relation and the media types is where we stick our coupling, and that's where we write all of our documentation so that when we make changes, the clients know that I've broken something, at which right. point you need to start doing versioning. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then, I mean, I, I had to laugh a little bit to myself before where I, and you say that uh, the end result of this is that you're actually dumbing the clients down quite a bit because I, right as you were saying that in my head, I'm basically thinking that this actually puts a lot more of uh, the complexity back out on the client and not necessarily that it, it, it's in a bad way, um, but that there's a whole lot of semantics here that the client now needs to understand in order to, to kind of light up this whole sort of architecture and, and discovery and feature set, right? So, I mean, there's... And it, it, it's really kind of internalizing a lot of the, the HTTP stuff that, that we've talked about. So caching, proper, proper cache handling and redirects and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the old school way of doing it was it basically follows the form of a method call. So you're still kind of putting all this complexity out on the client, albeit in a, a much more reusable fashion. Yeah, and it's different complexity. It's complexity in terms of this is how distributed applications can work, and this is how we make HTTP requests, and this is how we deal with uh, HTTP response headers. It's dumb insofar as it doesn't know the business domain so much. Because right. we can do things without needing to know the business domains uh, as much. Right. So then, I mean, kind of taking that to, uh, uh, you know, the, the next step there, like how reusable are these approaches like it if if there's a set of say 10 apis out there that are following this sort of hypermedia and discovery sort of um design uh, could in theory uh, a single library be used that's just a truly a generic rest client and then it it would be able to to kind of encapsulate all of this complexity in a way that truly is decoupled from the the actual business logic um it, the more human-driven it gets, the more generic you're able to do it until you get to a web browser, right? Because mm -hmm. a web browser is a REST client, and that's where you end up if you take this to the logical extreme, right? And the web browser knows absolutely nothing about doing banking transactions and buying books from Amazon, and yet we do it on it every day, right? Right. So, so that that is the the logical extreme, and 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 the architecture of the web browser client is very, very interesting. And we can scale back that a little bit. And this is one of the things that I've done in, in my prior work is build native applications that are 
for we'll call it for the line of business domain I've built a native client application that knows how to do data entry forms and show lists and display uh, banded reports and all those kind of icky things that you have to do for battleship gray line of business applications. So the client becomes generic, but it's more in that field. Whereas a web browser was a traditionally, it was a generic client for displaying textual scientific documents, right? We've done so much more with it with the code-on-demand capabilities of JavaScript, uh, but in its native form, that's what it's designed to do, right? Display flowing textual documents. So yes, you absolutely can build generic stuff. Whether you want to go that far or not is, is another question altogether. Right. Well, my, my thinking around that is more so around, you know, having to kind of rebuild these these semantics over and over in a lot of apps that client apps that you might have. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and kind of trying to get away from that, the, the necessity of the, the SDK model, as we were kind of talking about around the top of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the examples I gave of like the HTTP problem and HTTP home, like if, if you've got lots of APIs and they're all decided they're going to create their own discovery document, well, well, we don't want people reinventing those for every single API. And the same goes with errors. How many different APIs have you looked at who've crafted their own slight variant of an error response? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get consensus across a large range of companies on things that are very business specific invoices customers quotes company like organizations have been trying to standardize on these kind of business notions for years and it's very hard but standardizing on cross-cutting application concerns like error reporting and permissions management and just banded report management and stuff like that, the stuff that every app has to kind of do, well, many apps have to do, that kind of stuff, we, would, we should be able to get reuse across lots of different APIs. And that, that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see a lot more uh, reusable client code that is based on standardized formats so that I don't have to keep writing the same boilerplate code from one application to the next. Exactly, and kind of to, to that point as well, I, mean, I know, you know at developers were, were lazy, right? So I mean, it's gonna be a pretty big impediment to even um, furthering the adoption of this sort of approach if, if it really becomes you know a pretty big hassle to do it every single time in, in every single one of your apps. Yeah. So I think you know that there's almost just that necessity there from a developer for a, an adoption um, to happen there. Yeah, and one of the challenges to adoption of this kind of idea is that the way we're currently building these service wrapper client SDKs is really not compatible with being able to serve out standardized media types and, and fire off standardized uh, handling of those. One of the, some of the things that I recommend to people to do when building HTTP clients and going directly against uh, the HTTP APIs is one of the key concepts that I harp on a lot is this notion of separating the processing of the request from the response. When, when you have a service wrapper, both the request and the response are kind of coupled tightly behind this uh, procedural call. You make the procedure, you pass it some parameters, it does everything to do with HTTP behind the scenes, and it comes back with some native type. 
where what I try and push people towards is this idea of create a mechanism that will create me an HTTP request object so that we'll do the request that I need and and build build libraries if necessary to create those request objects that's fine because the semantics of how to make the request might be fairly API specific or they could be specific to a particular link relation type there's a, see there's another piece of reuse right is whenever I follow a link that points me to a collection of things I always want to do this whenever I follow a link to a style sheet I always want to do this you can get that the link relation type is a nice unit of reuse for building requests so you, you build libraries that allow you to create that request and then you fire that off to the server and then you kind of stop process you, you you let go and you wait for a response to come back because again like in, in cpu processing time you know it could take 100 milliseconds it could take 500 milliseconds for that response to come back so we now have libraries that are starting to do allow us to do things asynchronously um, and allow us to write code that is fairly in line but naturally the request and the response are, are quite distinct operations so if we actually treat them on the client as fairly distinct, where we get the response back, which is supposed to be self-descriptive, it's supposed to have all the information in it that we need to know in order to be able to process that response, we take the response back and we handle that independently from the request that we've made, then what happens is if later on the server decides to change and return back a slightly different media type, a new advanced media type that's more sophisticated, and if the client understands that new media type, it can process that media type independently. And there's no longer this coupling of, well, I know that when I hit this URI that I'm going to get back exactly this type. That doesn't necessarily need to be there when you split out the request and the response. And there's other things that you can do. Well, first of all, it makes testing way easier, right? Because now I can unit test my request generation uh, code completely independently of there being any server. I can unit test response handling code because I can just generate a mocked response and hand it to my response handling code. And I can also do other nice things like I, I can take that response and fire it off to some centralized response handling code that says, okay, here's a response that came back. Well, let's deal with 500 errors first. Because, well, we, if it's, you know, if it's a, if something that we can retry, let's retry it. If it's something that we can't retry, then, okay, well, we're going to need to show some kind of critical error to our user. Um, if it's a 400 error, then, uh, well, well, if it's a 401, um, then, well, maybe we need to add an auth header in there because we're missing that auth header. It, if it's a redirect, then we can do this. There's a lot of standard. I mean, this is the beauty of the uniform interface, right? We get standardized responses back so we can do standard behavior. And now we don't have to re-implement that code for every single resource that exists on the server like we have to kind of do with service wrappers because we just fire the response off to this kind of global handling and then once we're ha once we've done that global handling of the of the response we can then say okay well here's here's the content type that we got by and here's the link relation that we followed and here's the context of where our the state that my client is currently in let's apply this new representation that came back 
to that client state and see what it changes. And that comes back to this wonderful expression of hypermedia as the engine of application state. The idea here is that we build our client around this notion of some uh, this client state object. We make HTTP requests, and then we take the response back and we apply that response back to our client state and say, okay, well, now what state are we in? And the user interface would then need to react to whatever new state that that client state is in. And again, if, if people are interested in that concept, I, this is what I, I demo in the, uh, the uh, Xamarin Evolve talk. Right, and, and of course anyone who knows me knows that I'll probably um, always follow up a, a quick bullet point about testing with a, a much longer conversation about it. So I, I, I would love to kind of talk a little bit more about that as well. So then, so now that, that you're kind of internalizing HTTP semantics and things like that, um, it, closer in, into your apps, like within the, the real client um, API consumption layer, like what does that end up looking like as far as, you know, maybe like a high level look at, at class design and, and how does that look um, as far as being able to, to easier test things? Because it also seems like, you know, in the, in the old style model, you would have, um, in theory, a much easier surface area to test be because the surface area is that much smaller. It's really just kind of input and output, whereas now there's a, there's a lot more, uh, many more semantics and meaning um, and, and subtleties going on in there. Um, I actually think it actually breaks down into a simpler model. It, there are probably more pieces to the puzzle, but I think the individual pieces are easier. Uh, if, you, if you take a service wrapper type of method when you're making a call to a service wrapper, it's going to go off, it's going to possibly new up an HTTP client, set default headers, it's going to create a request object, maybe set up a payload to send, make the actual HTTP request across the network, and then get the response back and, and deal with any errors, any standardized errors that might happen, then convert the payload back into a type, and, and that's all wrapped up into a single unit that's, that's not so easy to test. Um, I mean, you can mock out that service layer, but that's a big piece of your client infrastructure that you're mocking out. What I'm saying is like, okay, if you, if you take, what I, uh, I will tend to do is create these things that I call strongly typed linked classes, because I like this, this notion of the link relation type encapsulating all the mechanics of how to actually send a request. So I'll cl create this typed link class. One of the classes I created was like a search link. If you ever looked at um, open search, it has a mechanism uh, that you can use for searching a particular website. and uh, you would then, I have also done it for OAuth, uh, token server, and the OAuth authorization server. Created a specialized link specifically for calling that type of endpoint. And with a link, you can use it as just kind of a request factory. So you set some parameters on the link, and then you say, create me a request, and you get back a request object that you can then unit test just that part of the process. Uh, and then on the response side is as you can new up just a response and you can apply that to your state machine and say, okay, if I get this type of response and my state machine is currently in this state, then do, what does this response do to my state machine? So you, you, you kind of take the network completely out of the equation there. 
and there's other pieces of the puzzle like uh, in the case of um, let me see if I can get this right the OAuth authorization call there's like a little JSON object that comes back and it has uh, like your authentication code and some other information in there I actually put little helper methods on that link class that says take that JSON object and convert it into the into a, a little DTO object that has the, the parameters uh, that I need in order to call the, the OAuth token, token server. So the various pieces of that overall HTTP request are broken down into component pieces that are individually much easier to unit test. Am I selling you at all on that idea? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Like I said, <laughs> uh, I, I just thought it was something that was worth a, a little bit more discussion since it's, um, well, yeah. just because I'm, I'm usually a pretty big fan of testing in general, and I think that's a, a pretty key component of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing is, if you're using a service wrapper and it's provided to, to you by a third party, then you kind of have to say, well, I'm assuming that they tested it and I'm assuming that it's going to work. <laughs> but remember, the, that poor API provider has to produce that SDK in eight different languages and he's got to rev it every time he makes a change to his API and so on and so forth. So there's a big burden on uh, keeping those libraries up to date. And they're not the easiest things to test because they go out and make a network request. Right, and and there's so there's so many subtleties also to depending on the the API that you have, um, you know, different headers, like different different people integrating with your API might send different headers that you weren't expecting or, or, or things along those lines. So it it could definitely be a, a tough thing to maintain, even just from the API side, much less from the 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 perspective of having to maintain all these SDKs on top of that as well. Yeah, and I think the real big win comes when you get to the scenario where you're a client want to communicate with multiple different APIs. Um, because now, if you're taking the service wrapper approach, you have to pull in multiple different service wrappers that could be written by, well, obviously are written by completely different teams, maybe have completely different perspectives on the way that you expose an HTTPI in a service layer. So you got to learn the two different methodologies. And then kind of mashing them up is hard because they are, they are completely encapsulating the stuff. So the way that one does error handling may be completely different than the way that the other does error handling. Whereas if those two APIs were simply to provide you with a way of creating HTTP requests and a way of handling, well, not necessarily handling responses, but a way of translating the payload bodies into types, in a simple kind of transact, uh, simple method. So just say, okay, here's the body. Give me back in some strong type. Then you can mix and match those APIs much easier because you've got more granular, reusable pieces to play with. Uh, and I don't know whether we're, we've seen a whole lot of mashups in the API space yet. Um, but I do look forward to that area because I think that's where this approach will really start to shine. So you've talked a lot about sort of the theory behind REST services and consuming them. Now, if I'm a developer starting working with these REST services, maybe I'm consuming them from a mobile device or somewhere else. Do you have any good examples of uh, maybe approaches to take or libraries that might help me take the correct approaches to, to implementing a, a client? I mean, 
one of the things I've been working on is trying to build libraries that help people. I mean, th there's a few really primitive type stuff, it's like URI templates. Is, it's a spec that was defined uh, by the IETF a few years ago of a way of constructing URIs in a safe way. And because you see so much code out there where people are constructing URIs by just concatenating strings together and they forget to do percent encoding where they're supposed to and the, there's just so many pitfalls there. And uh, this URI templating library was a way of saying, okay, here's a URI and here's where all of the template pieces go, uh, all the parameters go in it. And people have built standard libraries. I've built one for .NET, but I know there's Python libraries and JavaScript libraries. There's all sorts of libraries out there where you can just take a dependency on that library and say, here's the template, here's the parameter values. Please create me a valid URI out of that. And that's that's one um, uh, library that I think anybody who's getting into the hypermedia space should go out and find URI templating library. And even not in the in the hypermedia space, if you're connecting to a, a REST JSON HTTP API and they're asking you to hard code uh, URIs and construct URIs on the client and build yourself a set of templates, stick it in an array on the client and make it a static global array that you can access and then use a URI template library for building it yourself. It'll make it really easy when they do decide to change uh, a URI or add new ones in the future to just go and edit that global static array and add a new template. But you'll, you'll save yourself a ton of pain by using a, a well-tested library for building uh, URIs. Yeah, and of course for, for .NET, I mean, we have the HTTP client, which is immensely better than previous attempts at uh, communicating. Um, so that's kind of obvious, but I, we talked a bit about caching before. Is there anything that you'd recommend specifically in that space? I can speak more specifically in the .NET space. Um, the uh, out of the box on a Windows machine, you have WinINet cache, and WinINet cache will do local caching. Uh, I, the cache is available also on Windows Phone. Um, there are, uh, I know in the Java space, there is an HTTP cache. Uh, and uh, I know um, Paul Betts from GitHub has done some work on caching for uh, other clients, iOS and Android uh, devices. I've worked on um, another, pri uh, it's called Tavis.private cache, uh, which is an implementation of an HTTP cache, cache that can be plugged into HTTP client, and it is a portable class library. It currently only does in-memory caching on the client side, um, it doesn't do uh, to a file store. I'm still working on that. But there are a number of solutions available for, for client-side caching uh, on devices. And the beauty of using HTTP caching instead of some other kind of object cache is it just doesn't get in the way of your client-side logic. You can just pretend it doesn't exist because you make an HTTP request as if it was going across the network and it just doesn't make the request on the, across the network. It just comes back with the response. So it, it is just completely transparent to the client code. And the, the, the thing is, the, it's the server that makes the decision as to how long that resource is good for. And I've had debates with people as to the, the, the wisdom of this. But if you think about it, it's the server that really knows the best 
as to how long, how volatile that data is. Um, so it is in the best place to be able to make that decision as to how um, long that, that data can be considered good for on a client. Um, there was one other, uh, with regards to client caching, if you're in the Windows ecosystem and you ha you're using WinINet Cache, WinINet Cache is good for simple cases. It starts to break down into in more sophisticated cases, and there's certain things that don't work, especially when you start to try vary responses, when you're varying content type and doing con content negotiation. It's not so great when you're trying to say, well, okay, for this particular instance, I don't want to get any uh, use anything from the cache, so you should be able to send a no cache request header. Well, that doesn't work on Windows Desktop and Windows RT, but it does work on Windows Phone. So you've got to test some of these things. Um, but th th there is caching infrastructure out there, and it's free. So th there's a lot of value there if you just go looking for it. And how about examples? Is there any code that you're particularly proud of or you like to point people to as a great example of a, a good implementation of a, a client communicating with the REST service uh, in, in regards to .NET even? Uh, I'm, I'm learning along with everybody else. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I am very happy with, with how the examples turned out for the... Uh, the, the the Xamarin Evolve talk. Uh, I I have built a large ERP system uh, which follows a lot of these hypermedia principles. It was it was part of uh, the product company I was previously uh, involved with before I started working for Runscope, and uh, it does some really cool stuff with hypermedia. Unfortunately, that is not yet uh, out available. It's something that I would love to see. Uh, go out and be visible for lots of other people to see in the future, but uh, there's some there's some cleaning up that needs to go into that code base. And as I say, it's fairly large with an API of probably I don't know 800 or 900 uh, controllers in the API. So, um, with regards to client other clients, um, I am working on building what I call a web pack for the Runscope API, and that's available in source code and a NuGet package. Uh, and this is an example of, uh, I, I kind of advocate against the client SDKs as a service wrapper style, but there is still value uh, to being able to download a library that has certain amount of domain semantics. And a few years ago, I coined this term called a webpack, where I said, okay, this is the idea of a webpack is where it's a library where there are shared components between a client and server. And it's where we kind of encapsulate all the behavior of uh, link, strongly typed links and um, uh, media types that have been created for a particular API. And so that is available. I've also played around with them. Um, doing the same kind of concept for GitHub and creating, I have a Git, uh, Git links project where I demonstrate uh, something else that I would love to expand on further to demonstrate the concept further. Um, but as far as fully featured final products that are out there uh, available in open source, I can't point you to anything that I've seen at the moment. I think that's understandable. So I mean, this was this is a whole lot of stuff to digest. So um, 
I, we will have to try and convince you to come back on the show sometime to, to maybe dive into to some of these things, um, you know, kind of in isolation. Um, but is there anything that you think that we missed along the way that, that you think listeners should definitely um, be aware of as part of this conversation? Um, there, there's one thing that I, I'd like to add, and the, the idea is when you're building a client against an API, I find it kind of valuable to have a certain amount of paranoia against the person <laughs> who has built the API. Now, that may be you. <laughs> it may be an, another person in your team. It may be another team in your company, or it could be a completely other uh, developer. And they may have the best of intentions that something isn't going to change. but there are external forces that make us have to change APIs and add new features. And rather than using a version number as, oh yeah, well, we had to make a change that was breaking, so now we're just gonna slap a V2 on it. And now the client developer goes, oh, well, there's a V2 on it. So I wonder what they changed uh, on this API and what I have to change on my client and then they have to go back through the client and make changes. Instead of taking that approach, if when you're building the client, you start off by going, well, this is what they have at the moment, but it could change. So I'm not gonna assume, I'm gonna assume as little as possible. Like if there's a list of fields, don't assume that that field is always going to be there in the JSON. Check and see, is it there? If there's, going, if there's a link there, check to see if the link is there before you actually consume it. And if you take this slightly more paranoid approach, then you end up with a client that can be resilient to changes on the server so that maybe when they do bump it up to the V2, you go, oh, well, it's okay. I took that change into account. It's fine. My client might not be able to use that new feature that they have, but it's still going to work. So that attitude when building clients, I think can save a lot of pain uh, moving forward. All right. Well, I think that's a, a pretty awesome point to, to stop at for now. But thanks so much for coming on the show to, to chat about all this stuff tonight, Daryl. Oh, I, I had a blast. You can tell I enjoy talking about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we enjoy listening. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time on the next Gone Mobile. Mm-hmm.